they said, look, you're trying to switch roles and industries, do one of them. So, so they said, their advice was, if there's product management roles where you currently are, go after those because it's easier to in- internally transfer, which in all my research I found to be true. That's like the primary way people get into product is internal transfers. Um, secondly, they were like, look, if, if you're not in an industry that has product people or product managers, move to an industry in a role you can get that has them and then figure out how to transfer that way. And, and that's eventually the path I took. That's my guest on this episode, John Fontenot, on his path to product management. Well, John just wrote a book for product managers called Never Assume. We get into what assumptions and why they are a problem in detail a little bit later on in the podcast. And of course, what to do about those assumptions so they don't cause problems. And we also talk about Path to Product, John's new offering for folks wanting to get into product management. It's focused on how to get that initial product experience without having a product management job. You're listening to episode 119 of the Secrets of Product Management podcast. You can find show notes for this episode at secretsofpm.com slash 119. There are a number of books that we mentioned, and I'll put links to all those books into the show notes, and then a lot of links as well to other information, including John's contact information, all there at secretsofpm.com slash 119. Now, John had an unusual path into product management, and to get started, I asked him about how he ended up in product. The first four years of my quote-unquote adult career, uh, I spent contracting for Intel and their, their developer relations division. And part of my role was to identify what Intel's R&D teams were doing in terms of software optimization tools, SDKs, things like that, and go out into the market of software developers, partner with them, and figure out where we could add value to their products and their customer bases. And so I spent a lot of time in Intel's uh, innovation labs with their design thinking teams and just learning product concepts before I knew product management was a role. And um, and started interfacing with a lot of directors and VPs of products and seeing kind of how central the role was to an organization. Mm-hmm. And I, I like being in the know. I like being in the middle of things. And I just like the type of stuff that I was doing and working with them to do. And so I just naturally gravitated towards the role and told myself that that's the career that I wanted. Now, looking at your LinkedIn profile, I see some interesting other things like there's some agribusiness in there. There's some sales. How did those combine into into your career path? Yeah. So I, I tend to think of myself as like pragmatic, frugal, and opportunistic. And so growing up in middle-class family, uh, I, I always kind of had a awareness of like my family's finances. <laughs> and so when I went to college, I had different meetings with different advisors and the, the agribusiness came into the story where I wanted to do something in business. I, I was the kid that like sold stuff at basketball games and had like a little booth set up outside of the, the gym and stuff. Yeah, I was always a little hustler. And so um, I knew I wanted to go into business of some kind. And one day on campus at the university that I went to, the ag, the ag advisor that my dad actually had in college, ironically, was like, look, John, you could go to the business school and it's really competitive and you might get some scholarship money, but if you come ag business, you'll get all the same classes but you'll have some easier finance classes and then you'll get a full ride scholarship. And I'm like, Hey, free school. And I still get to have like a business degree. That's awesome. And not until later found out it was actually a science degree, but that's neither here nor there. So, and so did you work in agribusiness at all, or was it just for school? It it was just for school. Um, As I was graduating, I, I contemplated going to work for the USDA like my dad does, but 
uh, life took me to Utah, and that's where I discovered technology, got the the contractor role for Intel, and then pivoted into product from there. Interesting, interesting. And so do you feel like there's anything that you bring because of your background in agribusiness or your, your training or your education that gives you a interesting perspective as a product manager? Business and science, like, it's always come, you, you can make it as complex as you want to, and you can, you can make it as intellectually or academically challenging as you want. Mm-hmm. One thing I always appreciated about the ag department is like the way that these professors who mostly all had a farming background could simplify things and make things very practical in the way they, they delivered things. Mm-hmm. And so from a communication standpoint, from like how they taught and learned and like very hands-on um, those things carried through for me. Like, how do you how do you simplify complex topics um, and make it easier for yourself to understand and be able to convey that to others so they can understand more easily as well? Sure, that makes a lot of sense. I actually have an agri- a something of an agricultural background as well. I grew up on a farm, a small awesome. farm, not an agribusiness type of thing. But yeah, it feels like there's a lot of practicality. That fence has a hole in it. We have to fix that fence, right? <laughs> it doesn't matter if it's beautiful. It doesn't, the UX doesn't matter in some sense that we got to fix that fence. Yep. Um, so that's interesting. I, I, that, that agribusiness really popped out at me when I was looking at your, at your background, but yet I, I can see that too, where it's not agribusiness for agribusiness's sake or science, agricultural science's sake. It's how can we make more food? How can we be more efficient, use fewer resources? There's a very practical at bottom, right? Yeah, the world could use more of that right now, especially yeah. with what we're going through today. In every domain, not just uh, not just agri ag. Cool. Oh. That's really good. And so then you got into product management. What was your route? Did you, was it a lateral move? Did you say, okay, I've got enough experience as this consultant that I can legitimately sort of position myself as a product manager? How did that work? I tried to do that for a couple of years. <laughs> and uh, as anyone who's trying to get into product for a, for a while will, will tell you, like, it, it's hard w- without that experience to even get interviews. And mm-hmm. I got I got a few here and there. Some of them weren't even product roles. They were like more product marketing or project management. And, um, I, I eventually just started reaching out to recruiters trying to figure out, does my resume skills just suck? Or, you know, like, what am I doing wrong? And they're like, look, you're in an industry right now that is perceived as like a sales-based industry. We get what you're saying, but it doesn't come across on your resume and like it doesn't really resonate with us. So it's, it's hard to believe. They said, look, you're trying to switch roles and industries, do one of them. So, so they said, their advice was, if there's product management roles where you currently are, go after those because it's easier to in- internally transfer, which in all my research I found to be true. That's like the primary way people get into product is internal transfers. Um, secondly, they're like, look, if, if you're not in an industry that has product people or product managers, move to an industry in a role you can get that has them and then figure out how to transfer that way. And, and that's eventually the path I took. I, I said, well, if people think I have a sales background, let me go get a sales job at a SaaS company and see if I can you know, get that much closer to the action. And it, it ended up working out quite well, where within a couple of weeks on the job, I met one of the senior product managers on the team really nice guy, had a heart for aspiring product managers, which I was very fortunate to to find. And I just expressed to him, Hey, I'm really interested in product management. Would love to go get coffee. And he kind of took me under his wing. And six months later, I got a shot to uh, take on a role that they were looking for as a a UX researcher role. And he was able to pitch my skills and the side projects I was doing to the director of of product. And um, 
you know, that, that's how I got my foot in the door. So fantastic. So really the story is lateral move is, is probably the way to go and get yourself into a company that doing something and then make a lateral move into the product. Yeah. That makes, that's what happened. I did that. Although I didn't have a target of getting into product management. I was at the company. People said, Oh, you, <laughs> our product manager left. We didn't know what, no one knew what he did anyway. And they said, <laughs> Oh, you should go be the product manager. It's like, whatever. I didn't know what it was. So, but I did it yeah. later on. I figured it out, <laughs> but um, it's, it's very interesting, you know, cause Intel is one of the, I think of Intel as one of the places where product management kind of got invented. Mm -hmm. The modern product management, the book, Marketing High Technology, it's not, Davido is the author. And he basically talks about your role that you had about helping clients figure out how to use the, the devices and things like that. And so I know that you're also, and we'll probably talk about this a little bit more, but uh, you you have this new project that's, I guess, launching very soon, Path to Product. Tell me a little bit about that and we'll come back to it. But just give, give us a little hint and we'll come back to it. Yeah, so the I kind of sum it up in the mission statement is we're bridging the gap in product management experience for aspiring PMs. And that's what the, the research all showed that the reason aspiring PMs struggle to get in is they don't have experience. And so the, the natural thought that popped into my, my product management brain is, well, how do we get them experience before they get the job? And that's what we're trying to solve for. Nice, sounds good. We'll, we'll talk more about that in a little while. But of course, the main reason that you're here is that you have done something even more unusual than your path to product management, which is unusual enough in itself. You actually have written a book. So talk about the book. Yeah, the book's called Never Assume, 10 Fatal Assumptions Great Product Managers Never Make. And the, the impetus for it was, one, identifying some of my own failures in product management and how assumptions are the primary driver of those failures. And then just noticing themes, both from assumptions I made, that colleagues had made, or that cross-functional partners made about me and my role. <laughs> and, and so I'm like, man, there's got to be something here. And I noticed some books touched on it as kind of a, a side piece of the main point they were trying to make, but I, I didn't see something that attempted to holistically address the issue. And so I felt like taking it on. Nice. And that this rubric of never assume, did, did that come up naturally or was it a lot of work to come up with that never assume phrase, which is so awesome? I don't know. I, I really don't exactly remember how I got to the name. Um, I was just trying to find something short and catchy. It seems like all the, the cool books these days have like one word or two words in them. So. Yeah, yeah. It, it's great. It's great. So what are the, um, can you run, run us through the key assumptions that we should never make? Yeah. So the first, and, we'll, and we'll drill down on a few of them. Sounds good. The, the first five are, are really like looking at yourself and, and things that you should be aware of that like big assumptions you can make. And then the others are, are like a little different in nature. So um, never assume that you're correct. Uh, I always, I always like to look with, within myself, um, like making sure that people talk about empathy and humility and product management. And if we're assuming we're right about everything, that's kind of the antithesis. So um, never assume you're correct. Never assume your competitors are correct. I'm not going to be in order here. I should get them in order because I wrote the book. Ne never assume that your executives are correct. Never assume customers are correct. And then never assume customer um, customer priorities. Never assume UX complexity. Uh, never assume dev effort. Never assume that you're aligned, which is the longest book or longest chapter in the book for a reason. And then the last two, never assume that your team feels appreciated. 
is kind of a one that I think most people didn't expect, but really enjoy. And then the last one feels a little morbid, but it's not written to be, and it's ne never assume that you're doing a good job. And then there's a couple, a couple of bonus chapters at the end. But. I'd, I'd love to talk about a couple of these because these are, these are really great. I think you also mentioned there are some assumptions that didn't make the book and we'll come, we'll come back to those as well. That's a really interesting topic. We're all familiar with this, or some of us are familiar with this idea that, you know, you can't trust what your customers say, you know, Henry Ford, the famous apocryphal Henry Ford quote, right. but what about the competitors? What's this, what's, what am I assuming about my competitors that I should not be assuming? I, I feel like all of these topics I've had like monologues on before I wrote the book. And so I, that might come out a little bit here, but I, I've noticed times where people have come to me, whether sales executives or like C-level executives and saying like, hey, our competitors are doing this thing. We should be doing it too. Or there's clearly an opportunity in the market or whatever. And a lot of times they're public companies, but don't like fully articulate how and why they're doing things. So I'm like, look, there's there's a ton of assumptions baked into how they position their finances to even like get a glimpse into, is that the thing that's making them financially successful? Or are there a multitude of things that kind of come together? How are they different from us? Is their mission different from ours? It, like what's the differences in our customer base? And so as, as we start to ask them these challenging questions and unpack all of these things, then we have to fundamentally back up and say, did our competitors assume that they were correct about this thing? Or are they just building something because of a pet project that their executives had, right? Like, are they actually solving a customer problem? Are they actually creating value? And a lot of times the answer is no. I mean, there, there's research out there showing that 60 plus percent of features never get used. And so are, are we trying to do our jobs? Like we're highly paid professionals, especially like in, in American product management, we get paid really well not to flip a coin on whether we're right or not. Like it needs to be more rigorous than that. And I, I wanted to drive that point home in the chapter. Yeah. I always try to remember that competitors are struggling with the same problems we are internally. We know every dirty bit of dirty laundry about our product, but we don't tell people, we don't tell the world mm -hmm. about that. And our competitors are the same thing. They've got tons of dirty laundry that we don't know about. And so we, <laughs> they may have made a decision based on, as you say, bad, bad reasoning. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they may be saying it to themselves, oh, we have to do that thing that, that we are doing. You know, totally. that's, that's really good. The longest chapter, as you mentioned, is chapter seven, never assume you're aligned. So you said there's a reason it's the longest <laughs> chapter. What is the reason? Because it's the hardest to get right, in my opinion. Okay. And it's the most impactful. So I have a buddy, Zia Mohammed. He used to work for IBM. He's at, he's at Amazon now. Really smart guy. Had him on my podcast about a year ago. And on the podcast, he shared this story that I'll reshare here where we were talking about the relationship between product and product marketing. And I think it, it, this will pull at your heartstrings, I know. <laughs> um, we can, the story he shared was you can invent the cure for cancer, but if people don't know where it is, how much it is, how, what dose to take or where to find it, then the cure for cancer doesn't really matter that you have it, right? Because no one's going to use it. And so like I, I translate that into saying if, if our organization isn't aligned around the value that we're creating, who we're creating it for and what channels we need to get into the hands of those customers, right? Or, or there's, if there's misalignment, any part of that, then it's going to, they're going to 
go to the wrong channels, talk to the wrong people, and it's going to look like the product doesn't work well or doesn't create value. But at the end of the day, like your, your misalignment internally is causing downstream negative outcomes that could have been avoided otherwise. Yep. Yep. I totally agree. And if this, particularly if the sales is pitching it, if sales is pitching it as the cure for dandruff, <laughs> you know, that, that happens a lot in enterprise software. Totally. <laughs> cool. And so what do you, what are some of the things you cover in that? I mean, it's, it is a big extensive chapter and it's got a lot of stuff in it. Yeah. So I'm, I'm a huge fan of Richard Romont's um, book, Good Strategy, Bad Strategy. And one of the early chapters, chapter four, chapter five, I don't remember. It's, it's the kernel of good strategy. And I found this particularly exciting and interesting because, like I said, I love simplicity and, and making things uh, easy to grasp. And I, I've taken exec ed courses on strategy. I've, I've read a lot of strategy books, and a lot of them are very academic. Mm-hmm. And, and frankly, I think a lot of them are around strategic analysis, not actually formulating strategy, which I think is an interesting delineation. But the, the kernel, just to break it down, is you need to identify the challenge in, in your way um, to diagnose the challenge, then have a guiding policy for how you're going to make decisions, which mm-hmm. really helps the entire organization stay aligned, in my opinion. And then the coherent actions that you're going to take to overcome your, your challenge through the lens of that guiding policy. And what I did is I took that and then I added the OKR framework as bookends to that to say, mm-hmm. well, the challenge is in the way of your objective. Sure. And the key results are the outcomes of those coherent actions. And so I, I did a talk recently on like why I think OKRs are incomplete as both a strategic or execution framework. And I make the argument that those five pieces together make it more holistic. But in the book, I take all that to say, this is how you create alignment in an organization in five steps. Mm-hmm. First, the, the easiest thing to get align, aligned on, hopefully, is what the organization is trying to achieve. If the organization isn't clear on that, then you need to go talk to the C team and figure it out. <laughs> right, right. But assuming assuming you're aligned on the objective, then the next thing is, well, what's, what's the main problem in our way? What is the thing we have to tackle to get there? And then you can go down each major question in those cross-functional, cross-departmental meetings and really just get to alignment on the objective, the challenge. What, how are we going to make decisions about this? Mm-hmm. And how, like, if it doesn't fall into this framework, we say no to it or table it. And once you have that, then the rest of it becomes relatively easy. And then it's more like, okay, how do we, how do we stay aligned as we execute and refer back to that guiding policy when things start to deviate? Yeah. One of the things I, I really liked about that chapter and on the challenge part was that different organizations may disagree on what the challenge is. Can you, can you give an example of that? You have one in the book. I just, maybe you can go through that. Yeah. Um, well, I'll say broad strokes that there's different levels of abstraction that you could have in that conversation. So at the highest level mm-hmm. of abstraction, there's going to be a challenge that the organization faces. Right. And I, I think one of them, which um, goes back to the story in the book is it, let, let's say the challenge is retention or churn. Mm-hmm. Right? And I think the story I had was a hypothetical, but if it's churn, that's great. Like that's the thing you pro- your business is to solve for. But the, the way that you might go about it could be different based on what department you're in or, or as you're trying to root cause, do like a root cause analysis of what's actually creating high churn or lack of retention. There might be different opinions of what's causing that. Marketing mm-hmm. might think it's top of the funnel. 
customer success might think it's because it's there's no like not the right feature sales might there's different reasons right and so um at, at the end of the day there could be departmental departmentally specific challenges that are at a lower level of abstraction but if you're not if you're not aligned on like what the the actual challenge is then it's going to be harder to diagnose and go a step further of okay each department is going to have a piece solving for this let's find out what the actual root cause is and then once we have the root cause of the challenge then we can start breaking out into the different departments and saying what's the part that sales is going to play customer success is going to play product is going to play etc sure that makes a lot of sense and if you if if the challenge like you i think in your example is like improve sales by 10 percent mm -hmm. retention is a problem with that except the question is is it really retention so some people sales is maybe going to say oh just we're, we're getting terrible leads right <laughs> well is that really true or is it really that we're having retention problems right and oh and then they're going to say right. well it might be retention but that's because you know it's not our fault obviously whatever you know yeah um, so I think I think it's a great it's a great example and getting everybody aligned not just it's easy to say as you say let's make 10% more revenue that's an easy one to align on and there are some objectives that are not as easy to align on as that right, right? let's let's uh let's expand our market to Europe from the US right that's it's probably going to get harder to align on but still the executives can make an argument that says oh this makes a lot of sense but then what are the challenges to doing that? And there's some obvious ones and some unobvious ones totally. and that people have to be aligned. Yeah. Like, yeah. And very interesting. I, I really enjoyed that chapter. Do you have another favorite chapter that you would, I mean, I, they're all really good. <laughs> they're all, I mean, they're all really, everything's got really good points in it and good stories, but is there another one that you like, is there like, do you have a favorite story in the book? Yeah, that's a good question. There's a lot of stories that I really enjoy. Um, I, I look back at the, the conversation I had with my first uh, development lead at Lendio, her name's Amanda, and uh, I would just share like what I learned from her as just in person and then in the interview for the book for chapter 10, uh, or no, chapter nine, sorry, of never assume your team feels appreciated. Right. And I, I, I fall prey to this all the time where it's like, we're at work, we have stuff to do, let's get it done. But she was an incredible example of like in our daily standups, trying to make sure that like we knew how each other were doing like personally, how was our weekend? What are we doing this coming weekend? Um, and, and making that personal connection, but also like going out of her way to call out good jobs. Like there, we have a high fives channel inside of our, our Slack uh, channel mm -hmm. for India. And um, just like very intentional about giving praise to the team. And so I, I learned a lot from her that I, that I think Hopefully, I've, I've been able to do at least one percent better in in my own my own career with with my new team now. That's probably one of my favorite stories for for the reader to go go look into, just how like how she created those experiences for for our team and like the impact that that had. That's not work related at all, but creating that that human like person to person connection, not just the the work related relationship. It created a better working relationship as a byproduct. Sure. Teams that are, that feel safe and, and cared for, they're more productive. So really two questions left about the book. 
One is assumptions that didn't make the book, but first let's talk about, well, what, how do we fix this? <laughs> what, what, what's the opposite or the cure for assuming? Yeah, well, one of my favorite books, when, when I started probably nine, 10 years ago, really diving into like nonfiction books was uh, Andy Grove's Only the Paranoid Survive. And it was recommended to me because I was doing contract work for him. So at the time, and a lot of people were like, oh, you haven't read the book, you need to read this Andy Grove book. And one of the things that I took away from it is like, it's not to literally be paranoid, but it's to ask yourself those critical questions of what would we, what would we do differently under different circumstances or like what, what would we, what would we have to do to destroy our own company? Because we can bet competitors are trying to do that to us and just being really yeah. critical of not in a bad way, but in a, like a healthy way of our decisions and our current trajectory and so I think that made an early impression on me in my career where like having a healthy dose of skepticism, knowing that good leaders are going to challenge the things that you bring to them and mm-hmm. having experienced that several times myself <laughs> where <laughs> getting asked challenging questions that I didn't have the answer to. And I hated that feeling. Um, it just made me like hyper aware of what assumptions I were made, uh, that I, I was making. You put it well in one, one chapter, assume you're wrong. Yeah, kind of circling back, just assume, assuming you're wrong. Like I, I did, I did add that as like the the last part of chapter one is, and I think it holds true for everything throughout the whole book mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. assuming you have room to improve, assuming that you're wrong, especially when we get into the day to day of product launches, right? Like we have success metrics that we should be setting ahead of time, and so assuming we're wrong, like what are we looking out for downstream to tell us whether we were close, we were way off, or we were just we might have been, we might have been right, but having those things that give us that directional feedback. So, what assumptions didn't make the book? You had a you have a nice ten set of ten there. So, there's there's several. I mean, I I probably could have made twenty, and I was trying to just make it a, a digestible book. And I'm trying to recall off the top of my head. There's things that come up come come up all the time, and I'm like, that's going to be an addendum to my book. Like that's going to be an NV. Right, right. Um, well, the one that I that I always tell people is never assume sales knows how to sell your product, which you imply in, in the, in the alignment one, right? The alignment one is a lot about, well, how do we get sales aligned yeah. with what we're doing? But I have had the, I've certainly worked in a company where sales was not, they were using, they found, they got one word out of what our product did and they used that and it wasn't enough to actually qualify prospects. And so we had a lot of prospects in the funnel that never closed. Yeah. So, um, so that's a, that's that's one of the, that's a favorite one for me, which is kind of implied in the aligned. You know? Yeah, that's a good one. But I'm sure that there are a lot of other assumptions that that people make. I also feel like you your ten assumptions covered a lot of the ground. So was what was the hardest one of these to write or to get good stories for? The one that I thought would be the hardest to get stories for was never assume your executives are correct because I, I didn't know how many people would actually want to talk about that. But surprisingly, there a lot of people were very willing to talk about that. <laughs> so I'd, I'd say the, the hardest one was probably ne- never assume you're doing a good job. And I, I think that's because a lot of us thrive on positive feedback. But as product managers, we have to be very intentional about seeking ne- negative feedback. right? And, and I think if we keep that, neg- that never assume mentality of never assuming that we're right, then it puts us in a position to where we want to proactively seek that critical feedback. And we're, and we're going to be less likely to seek out bias confirming information. 
So I, I, I think out of all the chapters, that was probably the hardest one. Uh, the, the others, I think a lot of people were pretty, pretty receptive to telling stories. And, and I saw kind of the resonance of those chapters and people's reactions when I asked them for stories. Well, I have a story about executives, some executives who are not right. <laughs> I feel like everybody, we all have them from our past, right? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe even if we're not going to say it about our current executives. Yeah. And and do you get any pushback on any of this from other product managers or other folks? What What's the most pushback you get? Yeah, I, I think it's it's mostly surface level pushback. People see the, the title of the book and then they don't actually read it. And so they're like, well... We have to make assumptions as product managers. We can't know everything. I'm like, yes, you're 100% correct. We will never have perfect data. We will never know everything. But the the point is, is that there's, I, I treat assumptions like a dartboard, right? Like we're, we're, we're trying to get to the bullseye. Mm-hmm. And the less assumptions we test, the, fur, the, the chances are the furthest away we're going to be from the, the center of that dartboard or way off the dartboard. Mm-hmm. But if we acknowledge and practically look for those assumptions that we're making and we test those, then we reduce the risk surface area to where we get closer and closer to the bullseye. And it's a lot easier to find the bullseye when you're on the board than when you're way off of it. It's like getting further and closer and closer to the bullseye, to the dartboard or something. Exactly. The, the, the more you validate your assumptions or test them. Mm-hmm. That's cool. So, and, and you wrote this book for all product managers, aspiring product managers, do you have a target audience? Yeah, the, the primary audience was for aspiring or new product managers. So, so they could mm-hmm. hopefully avoid some of the pitfalls that, that I fell into when <laughs> I was uh, starting out. But as I talked to some pretty experienced product people, they, they brought up how it was a good reminder to them as well. So I think there's value on both ends of the spectrum, but uh, probably the, the most heartache will be saved from those who are just starting out. That's good. Yeah, I, I feel like uh, some of us senior product manager types can have a lot of hubris speaking personally, right? And so the yeah. reminders in the book, I, I find them really valuable. Even though in some sense I know these things, right? Yeah. But being reminded specifically and also getting tools that like you provide for helping get through or past these assumptions are really valuable. Yeah. So it works for senior product managers too, and and high, you know, higher level, higher, more experienced folks, as I should say. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. It's a great book. Uh, it's nicely written. It's a good read, um, and you know, I think you did a really nice job on it. So, thank you. Well done, and and I hope it is continuing to do well. It's just released recently. Uh, when did you release it? A few months back in in the spring. Yeah. Nice. Well done. <laughs> it's a lot of work to do a book. <laughs> Speaking of someone who has one. And uh, I'm, I'm really impressed with this. So very, very nice. Thank you. And I, and I think it's, it's great content. So everybody should read it. So you did mention as we went through, there's a few other books, like you mentioned the Andy Grove book. Mm-hmm. And I know there's some other books that you mentioned and the Richard Rummel book. Mm-hmm. There's other books you mentioned in the, in your book. Maybe you have a quick, like what's your current set of recommendations of your best, of best product management books aside from yours, of course. Yeah, there's a few outside of the ones that, that I've already mentioned. Um, so Teresa Torres and David Bland both talk about assumptions and assumption mapping in mm-hmm. some of their writings. The, the David Bland book, the name is escaping me, but if you just type in David Bland, like all his books will pop up. He has a bunch of good ones. Um, Teresa Torres, pretty recent book, Continuous Discovery Habits. She talks about it there too. And I, I think she takes Bland's concepts and 
uh, provides kind of a more concrete framework around it, if I'm remembering correctly. But I, I like the way how she builds her assumption map. Mm -hmm. um, so those two are really good. And there's one um, from Etienne Gar Garbugly. <laughs> I want to make sure I pronounce his last name correctly. It's called Solving Product. And it's probably the least fluffy product book I've ever read, where he kind of takes you through like this product lifecycle journey from I I idea to startup all the way to not um, like maturity and decline, like a lot of the product lifecycle charts used to mm -hmm. but it's mm -hmm. how do you reinvigorate growth once you're past expansion and maturity? And I, I just, I think it's one of the more underrated product books out there that hasn't gotten a lot of press. Fantastic. Well, I'll get all, I'll put links to all of these books that you just mentioned into the show notes for this episode. So people can easily go to the show notes and find those. And they're all, you know, I've, I've read the Rumble book. I've read a lot of Teresa's work, although not the book. Um, so I'm looking forward to, to all those. It should be great. So let's talk about, um, you, I think you have something that's starting launching pretty soon, like tomorrow or day after tomorrow as we talk today. So tell me about that. That's path to product, right? Yeah. Yeah. So path to product is something that I, I tried to apply my own advice to for never assuming. And like one of the early product books I read was uh, Eric Reese's lean startup. Mm -hmm. And um, we could do a whole nother two hours on startups, MVPs and, and like my beef with that terminology. But in his book, he talks about like what real MVPs are and they have nothing to do with code. <laughs> my short, right. sweet version of it. Um, and so I had this idea that kind of came from my own journey into product management of why is it so hard? And as I mentioned earlier, how can we give an alternative to experience before people get the job? After the 15th meme I saw on LinkedIn about the 20 year old candidate saying, getting told we need 10 years of experience. I'm like, well, that's impossible for me. Um, how, how do we solve this thing? Mm -hmm. And I think the real driver it was when I finally got the product manager title on my LinkedIn two weeks late with or within two weeks of getting that title change. I had at least three or four recruiters saying, Hey, we think you'd be a good fit for this role. Hmm. And I'm like, there's no way after two weeks of being a PM, I'm more qualified than I was even two months ago. This is crazy. So it, it led to uh, some research and testing some, some of my own assumptions around, was it really experienced, figured out kind of what the problems were. And then the, the question I had was, well, if we're going to solve this problem of alternative forms of experience, what does that experience need to revolve around? Are, are mm -hmm. there actually common threads in product management that hold true regardless of geography, industry, B2C versus B2B? It is, is that possible? Or is it as people say that it's so different in every company that that's mm -hmm. an impossible thread to find? And what I found out was that there was a, a handful of key things that never change for product managers, regardless of any of those external factors. Plenty of complexity within organizational cultures and processes and stuff. But generally, as a product manager in the role that we do, there are some very specific common threads. So we built a curriculum around that, uh, ran a concierge MVP through Red Lean Startup that will resonate. Sure. And so I had um, a handful of aspiring PMs for two different cohorts across six months. Uh, did one-on-one -on -one coaching every week, gave them assignments to actually go put into practice what they were learning. And then we built a very rough, not very pretty looking portfolio project. And then I would go one by one to product leaders for the companies that they did their projects on and be like, hey, this person really wants to work at your company. 
this is what they did to get experience around it. Uh, wonder, wondering if it resonates. Got a lot of good feedback that way. And there were some other assumptions we wanted to test. Won't bore you with the whole story. I probably have it written or audio podcast somewhere. But um, yeah, what, what we found out is that the, the portfolio projects really resonated with hiring managers as alternative forms of experience. But the, the aspiring PMs, most of them didn't do a good job of self-promoting their work. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so what we're launching on Tuesday is what I'm calling the path to product marketplace, where now you have a one-stop shop to get on-demand learning, build your portfolio projects, be able to share that externally online or in your resume. Uh, but now you can actually publish that into a marketplace where we currently have over 100 experienced PMs signed up who can rate and review your project, give you feedback on your project. And then the hiring managers can see your project and they can see the ratings and reviews as kind of a, a social proof aspect of, oh, well, mm-hmm. there's eight senior PMs that all rated this a four star or better. I can look at it and see they did a good job. The actual video recordings of their usability test and their uh, user interviews to actually uncover the problems, they're all there. The work is is clear, and uh, and the hypothesis is that it's going to lead to a lot more um, unexperienced product managers getting their first shot. Nice. That sounds like a fantastic program. So, how do people learn more about that? Um, they can go to pathtoproduct.io. It's path number two product.io. Uh, sign up for free. There's a ton of value in there. You get for free before you have to upgrade. Cool. That sounds great. And I'll put a link, that link into the show notes as well. That's fantastic. So I always like to end my episodes, John, as you know, with three things my listeners can start doing today to start to put these ideas into action. So do you have a, three things you sh- can suggest? Yeah. One of them we already talked about is just turn your mentality from being like a hyper optimist because a lot of product managers are hyper optimists. <laughs> Keep that, but temper it with a healthy dose of skepticism, never assuming that you're right and always looking for holes in your own argument before your executives find them and call them out. And then the, the other thing is, is look for techniques. Like I mentioned, uh, there's techniques outlined in the book, never assume. Um, there's techniques from others, like I mentioned from David Bland and Teresa Torres to give you a structure and a framework for you and your team to be very intentional about how to identify and prioritize which assumptions you're going to test. Um, so that, that would be my recommendations. Fantastic. That sounds great. And of course, recommendation three, buy the book. It's an awesome <laughs> book and worth reading. You. You'll learn, and you'll get a lot of those techniques in the book. So definitely do that. Never assume. And I know there's like a subtitle, but I go by the two, two word name, uh, by my guest, John Fontenot. So that, that was really good, John, any last words, and then we'll talk about contacting or getting in touch with you or getting connected with you. Yeah, I would would just say practice what we preach, right? Like anyone who's interested in product or has been in in product will will always harp on the empathy and humility cards of why that's so important in product. And and I don't think there's any better way to practice that than to keep keeping a never assume mentality. So um, empathy isn't reserved for your your customers. It's it's important for yourself, your colleagues um, internally on your team, et cetera. So. Um, so let's expand the definition of empathy and, and who it belongs to. Beautiful. I love that. So how, if people want to learn more or get in touch with you, John, what's the best way? Yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty easy to find there. If you type in John Fontenot, I'm on Twitter at product font. Uh, you can email me John at path product.io. And you can also get me on chat if you're on the path, the product website and have questions. Okay, perfect. Yeah. So that a lot of good ways to get in touch. Uh, great book. 
that uh, you, anybody can learn useful things from the book. Fantastic. And uh, a lot of good information you post on LinkedIn and you do Twitter and, and product to, uh, Path to Product is going to be pretty awesome. And I assume I will be on there too in some form. So that'll be great. John, I just want to thank you for showing, for coming on the podcast. I think a lot of good information in this, in this episode, and I appreciate your taking the time. Yeah, Nils, thanks for having me, man. It's been awesome.